Thank you. You may be seated. Well, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 21 through 43 of Mark, chapter 5. Um, where we're at in, in sort of um, this series and at this kind of section uh, of our, our preaching calendar, what we're looking at in particular it, it are the various encounters that Jesus has with people along the way. And, and what we're going to see today in particular is that in God's marvelous providence, so often when people come bumping into Jesus, they come bumping into him at a time when they are utterly and completely desperate. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Mark wants us to see that the Christian can never be more hopeful than when we're at our most helpless. And we're going to see three separate scenes of increasing helplessness as we take up this text and examine it together. We're about to take up the text and read, but before we do, let us ask for the Holy Spirit's help in prayer. Gracious Lord, we are utterly helpless and hopeless so often in our lives, yet we spend so much time and energy seeking to convince ourselves that we are those who make things happen in our lives. We try so hard to be self-sufficient, and so Lord, we pray this day that Christ would give us a renewed vision of reality, that he alone is sufficient to uphold us and to keep us and to satisfy us. And so now, oh Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hear now the word of our Lord from Mark chapter 5 starting with verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? 
And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately... The girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. As the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God, may he add his blessing to the reading of it. So what we see here. It is a situation that nobody ever wants to find themselves in. The, the situation where you look around at life and say, what can I do in this situation? And the answer is not a thing. That is a terrifying place to be. And yet in the economy of the kingdom of God, this is the perfect place for the Christian as wildly painful as being desperate is, this is where Christ does his most marvelous work. And so first, let's examine and look at Jairus, the desperate father, in verses 21 through 24. So Jesus has entered into uh, this region, crossing uh, the sea in a boat, and, and as soon as he gets there, the text says that, one of the rulers of the synagogue, by name, seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. J just a little bit about that, you know, that reality of, of the description. It's very important for us to see that. To be a ruler of the synagogue meant that you were important. You were somebody of means. You, you, you were a, a who's who and well thought of in society. You were dignified. And yet, here is this man who would have had people, in fact, even coming up to him regularly, falling at his feet, begging him that they wouldn't be cast out of the synagogue, falling down at the very feet of Jesus and begging him. And why? Because of his situation. The text says that uh, his daughter was at the point of death or uh, uh, the Greek renders it a little bit, she was having her last. She was at the very end. 
He has no hope. She is absolutely dying. And so here he is, falling at Jesus' feet and imploring him earnestly, help me. I have no other options. You are it. If you don't fix this, she's gone. You're my last option. It's amazing how being desperate can rob us of being dignified. It robs us all too often of our pride, in fact. And here this man sits, begging at the very feet of Jesus that he would do something about it. It, In fact, it, it takes his daughter on her deathbed to get Jairus on his knees before Jesus. Here's an interesting fact for all of us to think. What does it take for us to fall before the feet of Jesus? One thing that Mark does marvelously is paint irony. And especially where this falls in the storyline of Mark's gospel, what's just happened before is the famous passage of Legion, the, the man that's possessed by this whole legion of demons. And it's very interesting how that passage and this passage in particular have so much in common. When Legion sees Jesus walking up, what does he do? He runs and falls at his feet. Not because he has something going on, but simply because he knows who Jesus is. This should be a little bit frightful for us, in fact. That even the demons fall at Jesus' feet simply because they know who he is. And yet, here with Jairus, what has the Lord done? The Lord, in his marvelous providence, has brought about a situation to place Jairus right where he needs to be. To, in fact, see Jesus for who he is. That can be a, a, a pretty terrifying thing for us, too, though. That the fact that the Lord will regularly use tragedy to bring his people where they are. And yet, here's this reality too. That in the midst of tragedy, the Christian can bank on one thing. That the Lord who brought them to that situation loves them more than they could possibly love themselves. And I think Jairus is is actually even tapping into a, a certain reality here, in at least catching a glimpse of who Jesus is, that my child is not any more safe anywhere else. The safest place she could possibly be is in the hands of this man. And the place where Jairus has the most hope is when he rests in that reality, that my daughter is safe no matter what happens. She's the safest in this situation in the hands of her creator. This brings to mind, though, some of the prayers of of parents throughout the years that I've heard uh, uh, of taking tragedies of rebellious children who have rejected them, who have hated them, parents who who have done everything right, and yet what do their kids do? They run. And it's painful, and it hurts And yet, their earnest, consistent prayer 
resting in Christ like Jairus is with his children here. So often the Lord does amazing work. I think of one in particular, a a mom who had uh, this son who, from the time he was a little boy, was a deeply rebellious child. He, he, you know, they had some means, and he, he wasn't like, they didn't need anything, but he would just steal stuff to steal stuff. He enjoyed it. It was fun. And he ran from his parents, and he broke his mother's heart time and time again, and yet she prayed, and she prayed, and she trusted the reality of God's covenant promises, like Jairus does here, and said Jesus is able to bring him to himself. I know he is. And then about 30 or so, his eyes were opened and he saw the light, the beauty. Christ raised him from his spiritual deadness and brought him to himself. You might have heard of this mom. Her name was Monica. Her son's name was Augustine. And he would forever change the church for the glory of Christ. But it took a desperate situation to bring Jairus to the feet of Jesus right where he belongs. But as we continue further, we we see another desperate situation. The desperately unclean woman in verses 25 through 34. So as Jesus is walking through this crowd, a a woman with a discharge of blood comes, comes running up to him. And the text really paints her desperateness clearly. She's been unclean for 12 years. She's suffered much under physicians. She's spent all she had, and she's not any better. In fact, she's worse. She's spent the last 12 years of her life, more than a decade, one, just increasingly getting worse, two, being impoverished, and three, because of Levitical law, making everything that she touched unclean. The the sheer amount of physical anguish that that would cause somebody... is pretty astounding. The mental anguish, though, of not only can you not be around people because you're unclean, but you're, you're a curse. You make everything gross. You ruin everything. You are on your own. And you are not welcome. That's a desperate situation. Here she lived for 12 years, making everything that she's ever touched unclean, and yet here's her hope that maybe, just maybe, for once in her life, she would touch something, and instead of making it unclean, that thing would make her clean. It was her last resort. But isn't that a glorious picture of the gospel? going out your whole life and ruining everything, knowing the reality of who you are. You are sinful, and you're going to make a mess of everything, even good things. You're going to take your family, and you're going to make them an idol, and you're going to ruin it. And you're going to take a career that's really good and that you enjoy, and you're probably going to ruin it. And you're going to take hobbies and things that you enjoy, and you're going to blow it up and make an idol out of it, and then you're going to ruin it. Time and time again, ruining and making everything unclean and destroying everything that you have. And here you are at your wit's end, just wanting something to finally work and not get ruined by you. The beauty of the gospel is that in coming into contact with Christ, he doesn't just make us clean. 
makes us holy. He takes that which touches everything and it becomes a curse. And he cleans it and he washes it and he deems it good and clean. But he goes another step. He makes it holy. This is what theologians call definitive sanctification, that not only does he deem us righteous, that is justification, but he also deems us holy because he's, he's united himself to us. He says, they are mine and therefore they are holy. Here's the prayer that this prays. If you find yourself in a situation where you feel wildly and deeply unclean, it sounds a whole lot like the third stanza of Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Here's our biggest problem, though. You and I are probably not very desperate. That's a difficult reality for you and I to be in, in fact. We have so much, and we have so much liberty and so much privilege to, to, to forge the life that we want to live. And we're not desperate. We look to Jesus and say, that's great. You know, if you can help, that, that would be wonderful. Mainly help us in like, you know, a, a variety of ways. You know, there were, <laughs> the amount of prayers lifted up last night in Knoxville, Tennessee was probably astounding. <laughs> um, and that's the sort of Jesus that we want. Can you, can you make this two-second, you know, rubber duck, kick, go through that upright so we can tear those jokers down and have a great week because of it. Please, Lord, please. Fair prayer, though. Anyway, but here we are. We live so much of our lives not nearly desperate, longing, yearning, needing the feet of Jesus before us. We're a whole lot like the crowd. Look at what it says. Verse 24. And he went with him, and the great crowd followed him, and they thronged about him. Verse 31. And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Uh, the Greek there uh, it, it paints this picture more of they were colliding into him. It, it's it's the, the massive crowd that you're trying to, to walk through on, you know, the the. Black Friday sales on you know, Thanksgiving, right? You have the massive crowds trying to get the last TV and everybody's bouncing into each other. Who are we in the situation? Are we the woman desperately unclean coming before Jesus saying, you alone can make me righteous? Or are we the ones who are bouncing and colliding into Jesus day after day, week after week, and leaving completely unchanged? What's the difference between the two? One's desperate. And yet, hopeful. The others are just curious. Where are we? Do we long to be transformed by Christ? Do we long to be near him? Do we need him to wash us or we die? 
a great prayer that you could pray is say, Jesus, make me desperate for you. But last we see in this third scene, the desperately dead. Um, verse 35 through 43. Uh, arriving on the scene, they get through this crowd, and Jesus has this encounter with this woman who's been unclean for 12 years. And somebody comes up and gives the devastating news. People in the crowd come up and say, your daughter is dead. Few things can be more devastating than that. Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And, and you know, it, it even gets worse. You, your daughter's dead. Don't bother him anymore. Jesus persists and continues on. And what does the text follow after that? There, there's commotion. There's weeping. There's wailing. There's crying. This is language of chaos. Um, th this is language of death and the grave and destruction. I don't think it's any coincidence that this is very much the same sort of language that Mark will use to describe storms upon the sea and demon possession. This is language uh, of, of death, not even like occurring, but death being all-consuming. You're, you're stuck in a pit of death, and it's all around. And if you haven't experienced that, you probably haven't lived very long. Because that's the reality of a fallen and broken world, that death and darkness are all around. And we do all we can to shield our face and our eyes from it. And oftentimes... Oftentimes, we fill ourselves full of lies by it. But what's Jesus' response? Don't fear. Holy believe. He says that, and sometimes, you know, you, you hear that, and it's you know, motivating in the moment, but when you're in the midst of death being all around you, that, that's not always the, the most uplifting of words. But isn't that Jesus' call for all of us in the face of death? I think of the, the end of Pilgrim's Progress. I love that scene where he's about to cross the river and he's terrified, but he does it anyway. Bunyan picks up on the same sort of language. Don't fear, only believe. And so he continues on and he forges ahead knowing that I'm not my own, but I belong body and soul to Christ, my Lord. But one thing we do need to, to take into consideration here uh, is the nature uh, of corpses. They're not typically known for being particularly helpful, especially in resurrection-type stories. Uh, corpses generally just stay and remain where they are. They're dead. They're not very helpful in the moment. You have to do a lot of work to bring them back if you can do it at all. And yet, here it is, regularly, throughout the gospel according to Mark and throughout the gospels in, in general, that this is Jesus' preferred condition for redemption. Where does Jesus show up in the most astounding ways? It's in the places where death is most imminent. Where does Jesus show up and do a miraculous work? It's where situations are most bleak. 
And so we can apply this in so many different ways. But let's take this one first. Do you have an unconverted friend or neighbor or family member or child? And you think there is no way on the face of the planet this person is ever going to wake up and smell the coffee. They are bound and determined to destroy themselves. And no matter how much I talk, they leave completely unchanged. There's good news. That's the situation that Jesus steps in and says, this is perfect. We've got them right where we want them. Dead and desperate? That's where I do my work the best. But can we apply this in, a, in another situation? We, we look around at a creation that is groaning in death. And we say, there's no way this gets any better. And once again, Jesus smiles and says, haven't I made all things new? And haven't I given you my promise rooted in the reality that I conquered death and the grave? And so now you all can sing with me and the prophets and Paul. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Brothers and sisters, I hope you see the desperateness of this world that we live in. I hope you feel the weight that there is nothing you and I can do to make this any much better than what it is. But I also hope you see that Christ, our King, has already done it. And he's a hope that is more than sufficient to get you and I through the day. He's a hope that's more than sufficient to lay our lives down for, to fling ourselves before his very throne of grace, to look to him and say, while I may be desperate, I have a sure hope in him. Let's go to Christ in prayer now. Jesus, our Lord and our King and our High Priest who ever lives to make intercession, we look to you for all things, O oh God. Desperate that you would transform our lives and our hearts, that we would forsake the things and the idols that we've rooted our hope in, and that we would look to the surety of your transforming work in the gospel, O oh Lord, that while we live in a world filled with death, that we come now to this table, and for a moment, we taste heaven, and we taste newness of life, O oh God, so we pray, O oh Lord, that we would take fellowship and communion with you and be transformed by it and filled up with it. For in it you give us new life. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.